Good morning, everyone. I think, I think most of you know me, but if those of you that don't know me, my name is Scott Pinkham, and I'm one of the elders here, as Peter's already pointed out. And um, I don't normally wear a tie, but I grew up Baptist, so uh, good Baptists, when they preach, they wear ties, as you probably a lot of you know. But so some, things, some habits I just, can't, I just can't get away from. I know God doesn't care if I'm wearing a tie or not. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jude today, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We're going to cover most of Jude. If you think of it as kind of like a flyover of Jude and like pulling out the, the biggest, most important points, there's a lot in there. You might say, uh, why the book of Jude? Right? It's a short book. There's only 25 verses, uh, 461 words. Some of you think, what a nerd. I didn't actually count them. Your computer tells you how many words are in the thing. Um, it's got a few weird, obscure references in it. And it's easy to skip over on the way to Revelation, which typically gets a lot more attention from people. Well, I've got a quick story to explain why I chose Jude. A lot of you already know this, but there's enough new people here that don't know this story. So in May of 2022, Matt and Hannah were here as part of the interview process to become our new pastor. And the Sunday that he preached his his, uh, interview sermon was on the rich young ruler. Well, he didn't know that I was scheduled to preach on that same text two weeks after that. And I didn't know that either. I asked her for it. So, so I was crazy that that would be that God work it out that way. But anyway, so I had to follow Matt, who is a seasoned preacher, and is the process of becoming a doctor, right? And he shared with us that week as part of his sermon prep process. The first thing he does is he takes the original Hebrew and Greek and translates it into English. Okay, so I just want to make sure I didn't have to follow him on the same text again. <laughs> And I can't remember the last time I ever heard a sermon on Jude, so I said, well, that's not really why I chose Jude. I just like, I, I take any excuse I can to tell that story. Um, so I'm going to read, by the way, this is Maggie's first sermon. I feel like kind of honored and also pressure, like, because she was just born yesterday or close to yesterday, so I probably. So we're going to read most of Jude. Uh, like I said, it's kind of a flyover. And some of you will notice the, the verses that I'm skipping are the ones that, are, that contain some of the more obscure references. So again, think flyover. Uh, Peter and Matt, they're smarter than I am. They'll, they'll preach on those other verses someday. But. All right, so this is the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is way near the end of the New Testament, just before Revelation. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now we're going to skip to verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, 
twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And we're going to skip to verse 17 to the end. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, uh, that you've revealed it to us and given it to us. We just pray that in these next few moments, as we look at this text, you'll uh, open our hearts and just uh, take away our distractions, Father, and I just pray that um, the things that I speak will be true, and they'll go out and they'll accomplish what you want them to accomplish. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So there's an outline in your, on the back of your bulletin. It's kind of small, but uh, sorry about that. It's because it's a fairly thorough outline. It's because I'm a type A personality with a touch of OCD, so that's, come on in, the water's fine. So there's four main points that we're going to look at today. There's three explicit points that we see in the text, and then one implicit point that we'll look at as well. Number one, contend for the faith. This is the order they appear in the text. Contend for the faith or fight for the true gospel. Number two, reject false teaching. Number three, persevere in the faith. And then the fourth one is a little bit of a mystery point. We'll talk about that at the end. And you'll notice in the outline I have point two listed first. That's because I'm someone who always wants to hear bad news first. Barb will ask me, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? I always take the bad news first. So we're going to talk about the bad news first, which is in point two about false teaching. And then we'll cover some better news in points one, three, and four. So let's start with point two, reject false teaching. So the bad news is that false teachers have, are not just something that the early church had to deal with, Right? False teachers have always existed, and they certainly exist today. And you might think this is a fairly obvious directive. That is, you might say, well, of course I'll reject false teaching. I'm not going to follow teaching that isn't true, right? But what Jude does for us is he points out several things about false teachers and false teaching that are important for us to understand. If we want to reject it, part of that is knowing what to look for. So we're going to look at nine important things that Jude points out about false teachers and false teaching in his letter. Number one, false teachers are inevitable. Again, these are all in your outline if you, can read the t- if you can read the print. The Bible warns us often about false teachers, not if we encounter them, but when we encounter them. Here's a few examples. This is from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster will come upon you. Matthew 24, 24, this is Jesus speaking. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers 
to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And one final example from Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking again. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every fruit that does not bear good fruit, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And there's a lot more passages that we could, we could refer to about false teachers. Uh, something to notice is that these are prophetic warnings that state as a fact that false teachers have always been and will always be a problem for us. We need to remember that false teachers, they've always existed, and they certainly exist today, and we need to be on the lookout for the ones that we run into and encounter today. Number two, false teachers are sneaky. In verse four, for, people, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And the phrase crept in unnoticed means that false teachers are often are deceptive and sneaky. And we can sometimes be led astray by them because we want their false teachings to be true. Notice one of the ways in verse 4 they're doing this. They are perverting the grace of God in sensuality. Later in verse 7, Jude writes, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So these false teachers are abusing the doctrine of grace to allow and promote sexual immorality. This is a sneaky but very effective tactic to use the grace of God as license to do what our sinful hearts already want to do, making it easy to lead us astray. Jude gives us another example of how false teachers are sneaky in verse 12. It says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And hidden reefs is a reference to the danger of being in a boat and coming into waters where there are rocks or reefs that you can't see from the boat. So Jude is saying that these false teachers, they eat with you, they seem like safe, loving shepherds, but they're like rocks beneath the surface of the water that will sink you if you follow them. It's also interesting that he compares them to shepherds that feed themselves. He's saying that these false teachers have the appearance of a shepherd whose job is to protect the sheep, but they really, they only care about themselves and not their sheep. Jude is teaching us that false teachers and their doctrines can be very sneaky. They can go unnoticed, and they may seem like caring shepherds, but in reality, they care most about themselves. Number three, false teachers are deadly. This is from verse five. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The Bible uses the Exodus as one of, if not the most important act of deliverance in the Old Testament. It's a symbol of salvation. God saved his people out of bondage, slavery, oppression, and he did it in miraculous ways. However, Jude's reminding us that not all the people that were delivered out of Egypt were true believers. They were delivered from the bondage of Pharaoh, but not from the bondage of sin. They were ultimately destroyed not because they didn't have a perfect behavioral record, but they were destroyed because of their lack of or their misdirected faith. This is a humbling reminder that not all of us that are part of the visible church are God's children. The invisible church is made up of those with a genuine faith in Christ, those that have repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus, understanding that salvation is found through him alone, trusting in his perfect record instead of trusting in our works. So false teachers can be deadly because if we're putting our faith in the wrong things, we will be destroyed, just as the Israelites who did not believe were destroyed. Correct theology is important, 
Because it's not how much faith we have that saves us, but rather that the faith we have is faith in Jesus, even if that faith is very small. So false teachers are inevitable, they're sneaky, they're deadly, and they often use the grace of God as license, number four. We touched on this briefly as, as part of point two, verse four again. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They use the concept of grace as a license to sin. Paul addresses the same problem in his letter to the Romans. They were also using the grace of God as a free pass to do what they wanted. In the true gospel, grace and law are not mutually exclusive, but instead are tightly woven together. Grace is first and law is second. We see this pattern even in the Old Testament. Before God gives the law to the Israelites in Exodus 20, he first reminds them that he loves them, how he freed them from the Egyptians, and that they will be his treasured possession, grace, then law. The gospel changes us by revealing to us just how much God loves us. Once we see the beauty of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we're motivated to obey. We begin to see the beauty of the law, and we want to follow it because it brings us closer to the God we love, grace, then law. False preachers will often preach a soft gospel and leave out the law. They preach about the meek and lowly Jesus, and they leave out about Jesus, the judge and king. And ironically, the gospel they preach is not as good as the true gospel, because if you remove the hefty requirements of God's law, it diminishes Christ's sacrifice. Numbers 5, 6, and 7, false teachers are envious, they're greedy, and they reject authority. Jude points out all three of these in verse 11. He uses three Old Testament accounts to illustrate. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perished in Korah's rebellion. In the first illustration, Jude refers to the way of Cain. And the story of Cain is found in Genesis chapter 4 and how he was motivated by envy to kill his brother Abel. Cain was so jealous of the fact that God liked Abel's offerings better than his, he murdered him. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes about preachers who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. False teachers often will be jealous of others, and that can lead to conflict and rivalry with other teachers or members of their own flock. In the second illustration, Jude writes, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. The account of Balaam can be found in the book of Numbers, and he's best known as the prophet whose donkey spoke to him. But what Jude is referring to as Balaam's error is greed. Balaam was a prophet that God spoke to, but in the end, Balaam gave in to his greed and sells out the Israelites for financial gain. Like Balaam, false teachers will often love money and material things more than they love God. In the third illustration Jude uses, they perished in Korah's rebellion. The account of Korah is also found in the book of Numbers, and Korah and those who stood with him did not accept the authority of Moses. And so what they're really doing was not accepting God's authority. They were rejecting his authority. And who had appointed Moses. And because they rejected God's authority, God opened the ground up and had it swallow them up. And like Korah, false teachers will often have a distorted view of authority. They're willing to wield their authority against others, but they will not submit to authority themselves. Number eight, false teachers are divisive. Verse 19, it is these that cause divisions. Divisiveness is the opposite, of course, of unity. And the unity of God's people is a consistent and important theme throughout Scripture. Psalm 133.1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And Paul often wrote about the importance of unity in the church. Philippians 2.2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind, and 2 Corinthians 13.11, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The credibility of the gospel is in part tied up in and depends on the unity of the church. God made us to be communal creatures, and we desperately need to be unified with our community. False teachers can be very divisive, creating divisions in the church and causing conflict rather than promoting unity and peace, and therefore they can do incredible damage to the reputation and effectiveness of the church. And finally, number nine, false teachers are not true believers. This is also in verse 19. Jude writes that false teachers are worldly and devoid of the Spirit. They may seem to be spiritually sound, but their focus will often be more on the present world we live in than God's kingdom. James wrote that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and the idea of worldliness is often used in Scripture to represent rebellion against God, which is why Jude uses the word worldly to describe false teachers who are devoid of the Spirit. Scripture is clear that true believers receive the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 9, you, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So Jude is making it plain to us that false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. That is, they're not true believers. The gospel has not changed them. True believers will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. False teachers are not true believers, and so they will not bear true spiritual fruit. So we've already said that we know false teachers have always existed, and we went through Jude's false teacher checklist— And I'm sure many of us, as we go through that and think about those traits, can even think about teachers that we've known or or even know today that exhibit some of those traits. We we can identify false teachers that that are even maybe teaching somewhere this morning. And fortunately, Jude gives us some instruction and encouragement on how to reject false teaching in the next three points. So let's go back to point one in the text, which is to contend for the faith or fight for the true gospel. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is telling us to contend for the faith. And what is this faith that's worth fighting for that he's talking about? It's the gospel. The good news that although we're born sinners and unable to save ourselves, God provides forgiveness through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus available to those that repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So how do we contend for the faith? We need to really know it, and we need to really believe it. There's a lot tied up in those two words, the faith. It it doesn't mean simply having the knowledge of Jesus, or even believing that he's who he said he is, but the way that that knowledge and belief in Jesus leads to a changed life. The true faith, the true gospel, is life-changing. Jude goes on to write that this life-changing faith was once for all delivered to the saints. It's easy to forget that Jude wrote this 200 years or so before something resembling what we have as the New Testament was even in circulation, and about 300 years before it was officially recognized as canon. But even so, many of the letters written by Paul and others were circulating and had already been accepted as affirmation of the faith that Jude refers to. 
and as such could be relied on to defend against false teachings and false gospels. So at the time Jude writes this, he refers to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And once for all implies a finality. Jude is reminding them and us that the truth of the gospel has been established and is unchanging. And this is a truth that we can find great comfort in. The same gospel that Jude and the early church preached is the same gospel we preach today. When people who work in the world of identifying counterfeit money are being trained, they don't begin by studying the most recent fakes or techniques being used to create the fakes. They begin by learning the real currency so completely they can spot a fake easily, regardless of how realistic the fakes are. We need to approach the gospel and scripture in the same way, to know it so well and so completely that when we are presented with false teachings and false gospels, we can spot them easily. We need to really know it. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Just knowing the information in the Bible isn't enough. That knowledge should lead to a changed life. Genuine belief will lead to a changed life. Notice in the psalm I just read, the storing up of God's word leads to a change in behavior. That is, it's to keep us from sinning. Not just knowledge in our head, but life-transforming belief. Paul writes in Romans 1.5, Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. James wrote that faith apart from works is useless and that even demons have faith and believe. James is saying that genuine faith in the true gospel produces good works. Our good works can't save us, but true saving faith brings about good works. So we must contend for the faith or fight for the true gospel by really knowing it, preaching the gospel to ourselves and each other often, and spending time daily in God's Word and storing it up in our hearts, and also really believing it. We need to test our faith by examining the fruit in our lives. Genuine faith in Christ always leads to a changed life. It makes us a new creation. If our faith is genuine, it will help us to recognize and reject false teaching when we encounter it. And again, not if we encounter it, but when we do. So the third explicit point Jude gives us is that we must persevere in the faith. So in the closing verses of his letter, he gives us five ways to persevere in the faith. Verses 20 to 23 again. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So let's briefly look at these five ways that Jude gives us to persevere in the faith. The first way he gives us is by building our faith. The best way to truly build our faith is to put it into practice. Jude has already instructed us to contend for the faith, and we know that to do that we first must know what that is by studying God's Word, but we will grow in our understanding of the faith as we put acted out in our lives. It's not just the truth to defend— but also the truth that should affect how we live. As we live out the gospel and put it into practice by following Christ's commands, our obedience helps to build our faith, just as our faith builds our obedience. The second way he gives us to persevere in the faith is to pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude is reminding us that if we're genuine believers, it's not just because of the building that we do or have done, but because of the work God has done for us. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
the same Spirit that enabled us to say the initial prayer to the Lord to forgive us and save us is the same Spirit that keeps us praying. This is what Jude means when he instructs us to pray in the Spirit. We should pray often, alone, with our families, our friends, our church. It's why we emphasize corporate prayer here at Grace through the prayer of confession and the congregational prayer. Prayer is one of the best ways that we act out our recognition that apart from God, we truly can do nothing. The third way to persevere in the faith is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we keep ourselves in the love of God by walking in his ways, by obeying his commands. If you're a Christian, God's law and his grace are inseparable. John 14, 15, this is Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that without Jesus, the law kills, but with Jesus, the Spirit gives us life. Simply put, we keep ourselves in the love of God by keeping Christ's commandments through the power of the gospel. The power of his Spirit enables us to live changed lives that keep us in his love. God's commands are not arbitrary rules to which we earn his favor, but rather they are for our benefit, and how we show him that we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our obedience is an act of love that keeps us in his love. The fourth way Jude gives us to persevere in the faith is to wait for the mercy of Christ. Jude is alluding to the return of Christ here. For those who don't know Jesus, the second coming represents judgment. But for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, to let his perfect record stand in our place, Christ's return represents a day of mercy that leads to eternal life, not judgment. This is a reminder for us to live our lives looking forward to the promise of Christ's return, to the time when Jesus promises to return and renew all things. We should live our lives with an expectant hope, waiting for the return or mercy of Christ. And the fifth and final way Jude gives us to persevere in the faith is to show the mercy of Christ. Verses 22 and 23, And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. First notice the contrast on having mercy on those who doubt and snatching others out of the fire. This is a great reminder that there's no one-size-fits-all way to lovingly correct one another and hold each other accountable. We must show wisdom and discernment with each situation. Some people in situations require more mercy, and others require a much more urgent snatch-first-and-ask-questions-later approach. This is one of the reasons we practice this as a church, because we so need the counsel of each other. Correction and accountability require a combination of tenderness and truth, and most of us are much better at one and not so good at the other. We should strive to show love and mercy without downplaying the danger and seriousness of sin. And we're able to do this because of the gospel. We show mercy because we've been shown ultimate mercy. We want to snatch others from the fire because we've been snatched from the fire. So Jude's given us three explicit applications to reject false teaching, to contend for the faith, and to persevere in the faith. So as we wrap this up, let's look at the implicit application Jude gives us. This is the mysterious question mark point on your... Alex even asked, my daughter even asked me, Dad, did you mean to do that? I said, yeah, I did. That was some per- Anyway. So point four is this, to behold the beauty of God. Behold the beauty of God. The way that Jude has written this letter points to the mysterious beauty of God. Here's the last two verses of Jude again. It's 24 and 25. 
Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So there's a tension that exists throughout all of Scripture. And the tension, this tension arises from questions like this. Is God sovereign and in control of all things, or do I have free will? Were we chosen before the foundation of the world, or do I have to choose to put my faith in Jesus to be saved? Is God's love conditional or unconditional? And the answer to all these questions, and many others that you could come up just like it, is yes. It's not either or, it's both and. And we see this tension here in Jude. Jude opens and closes the letter, reminding us of the sovereignty of God, but in between those truths about the sovereignty of God, he gives us a lot of instruction about our responsibilities, the things we must do and not do. He opens the letter with pointing out that we're called and that we're kept. These are things God does, not us. He then covers a lot of things that we should not do and some things that we should do. And then he closes the letter by again reminding us that it's God that keeps us and presents us blameless through Christ. Again, note that this is God doing the keeping and the presenting, not us. I'm probably not alone in this. But I really used to struggle with these ideas in Scripture that create this tension because they seem incompatible and contradictory and impossible to explain to ourselves, let alone explain to somebody else. Let's take this tension that we see in Jude. Am I called and kept, presented blameless through Christ, or do the teachings and teachers I choose to follow determine the outcome of my life and, more importantly, the fate of my soul? Jude asserts that both these things are true at the same time. Either of these choices on their own are not good options, and here's why. So on the one hand, if it's only true that God is sovereign and in control of all things, then I'm basically a robot. My choices don't matter. So why does anything I do matter at all? Even if I think I'm choosing to repent and believe, really it's God directing me, so it's just an illusion of choice. But the other choice, I think, is arguably worse If it's only true that I have free will and the choices I make are 100% responsible for the direction of my life, and more importantly, what will happen to my soul when I die, I should and likely will be terrified to take any action at all or even get out of bed in the morning. And I have to be honest, with my track record of decision-making in my life, this is not a favorable option for me. (laughs) So we're quick to think that it must be either one of these or the other. Either God is sovereign or I can have free will. They can't both be true. But our minds are tiny compared to God's. What if instead it was possible for me to have free will, to be responsible for the choices I make, and therefore my decisions have meaning and purpose, while at the same time knowing that God is in control of all things, and that no matter what mistakes I make, inevitable and numerous as they may be, God will work it all out to my good and his glory? Well, this is what Scripture teaches throughout, and what Jude is teaching us here. This verse in Proverbs sums it up well. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's not either or, it's both and. It's as if one day I heard God saying to me, Stop trying to figure me out. Stop trying to explain me. He reminded me that it wasn't my ability to explain him that saved me, and it wasn't clever arguments that revealed my need for a savior. It was the beauty of the gospel that saved me. In John chapter 1, When Philip was trying to tell skeptical Nathaniel about Jesus, he didn't try to explain him. He said, come and see. 
If I read into that invitation, it's possible, Philip was saying, I can't explain this. It's too miraculous and beautiful. You're going to have to come and see for yourself. Those of you that know me at all know I'm not artistic in any way. Just ask my kids or my wife. I can't draw, paint, play an instrument. My poems are terrible. My family mocks me. Um, In love, of course. It's all in love. The canvas that I'm most creative on is spreadsheets and accounting ledgers. However, even as a nerdy, math-loving numbers guy, I would testify that God is more like a beautiful painting or piece of music that escapes my explanation rather than a math equation that I can figure out and explain. It was the beauty of God in the gospel that saved me. And for those of you that are Christians here today, it's the same beauty that saved you. And for those of you that aren't Christians yet, it's the beauty of God and the beauty of the gospel that will save you. And maybe you're starting to see that beauty this morning. If you are starting to see the beauty of the gospel, God is calling you. The gospel is the most mysterious, beautiful thing. God loved us so much that he became like us so that he could save us. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, like Philip to skeptical Nathaniel, I would invite you to come and see. Dostoevsky was a really smart Russian guy that lived in the 1800s. Some of you smart people will know who he is. He once wrote, beauty will save the world. When God draws us to him and we behold the beauty of God, and specifically how he revealed his beauty through the gospel, that's what saves sinners. There is beauty in the gospel, and there's beauty in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and our free will. Don't fret over these mysterious doctrines in Scripture like I used to, but rather behold the beauty of God in them. So the three explicit points and the one implicit point that Jude's given us their applications in in themselves, so we've already applied them, but let's, as we close, let's just review them quickly one more time. Number one, reject false teaching. Recognize that false teaching has always existed and will always exist until Jesus renews all things. Beware of it. Be on the lookout for it. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. As Paul wrote to Timothy, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Number two, contend for the faith or fight for the true gospel. We need to know the genuine article so completely when we see counterfeits, we can identify them. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and each other often. And we need to spend time daily in God's word, reading it, studying it, meditating on it, hiding it in our hearts. The more we practice these things, the better we contend for the one true faith and the one true gospel. Number three, persevere in the faith. Jude instructs us to build our faith, pray in the Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God, wait for the mercy of Christ, and show the mercy of Christ. And there's really no magic bullet here. It's the same advice that the old Sunday school ladies have been giving us forever. Read your Bible every day, make time to pray, confess sin often, seek community and accountability from the local church God's given you. Wait expectantly for the return of Jesus. These things work but they do require effort and discipline. And the last application, and my favorite, behold the beauty of God. Don't fret or fear difficult, seemingly impossible doctrines in the Bible, but rather embrace them. God himself is a beautiful mystery. The gospel is the most beautiful mystery there is. Search for the beauty in the difficult doctrines of our faith. Remember that it's the impossible beauty of God, the impossible beauty of the gospel that saved you or will save you. And it's the beauty of God in the gospel that will also help us reject false teaching 
contend for the faith, and persevere in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful uh, for the gospel, how it changes us. Help us to recognize and resist false teachings when we encounter them. Father, increase our faith, increase our love of the gospel. Father, may we leave here today changed uh, because of your gospel and because we came together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.